everyone. It's time for another episode of the Macrovisor podcast with Aisha and Mayhem. And we're going to talk a little bit about a continuing theme, the cracks underneath the surface of the market and economy. But before we get to that, Aisha, great to have you here. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's great to have the second episode of the podcast. I know it's been a while since our first episode, but I think we've got things lined up now and I'm very excited about this. Absolutely. I'm excited too. And it's really been a lot of, uh, you know, sort of ups and downs in the data that we've seen and the way the markets reacted since we released our first podcast. So we've got some ground to cover. Where would you like to begin? Absolutely. I think, you know, January has been a very interesting month and we're almost halfway through February and we're seeing still interesting price action. We've got earnings season going on. We've seen various data points come out. And I think one of the data points that was quite interesting was the ISM data and the industrial production data. If you remember, we discussed it a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. And it doesn't seem to be pointing to encouraging signs. These leading economic indicators seem to be pointing us towards economic slowdown or even a contraction. What are you seeing within that ISM data that has your attention? So it's quite interesting. We see that, you know, we're, it's come down significantly. We're now in contractionary territory, which is below 50. And usually when something like this happens, we tend to, you know, uh, enter a recession. If we look at past instances, a recession always starts with a decrease in the ISM data. And we're also seeing month-on-month decrease in the industrial production data, which is likely to, you know, lead the industrials down. So industrials have been pretty strong for the last couple of months, but I think this data points towards industrials beginning to weaken. Aren't we also seeing some signs that their forward earnings may be weakening as well, that there's some sequential deceleration expected in the industrials? Indeed, we are. I, I think uh, both Caterpillar and we have Deer reporting this week, and we should see more from them. But in general, most of the industrials are beginning to soften a little bit. It's important to keep an eye on this because, you know, the thesis behind these industrials rallying in the back half and really the back quarter last quarter of last year and some of this year was the China reopening, the idea of a soft landing, the idea that really things aren't as bad as they look. But when we look underneath the surface at this of this data, it actually suggests the opposite, that really the China reopening hasn't had this effect of buoying industrial and manufacturing demand, and that some of the things that we're seeing in the U.S., aren't really that promising. One of the things that caught my attention, speaking of ISM data, was new orders has fallen to 42, indicating deep contraction. And that's one of those indicators that really starts to tell us, you know, businesses are losing confidence and they've just had this big inventory build. So it sounds like these new orders could actually continue to fall because there's no need to replenish inventory if people really aren't buying. What do you think? Absolutely. So new orders will tell you what what's to come, right? So and if people are not ordering, it just, you know, goes to show that 
the Fed's tightening is working and demand is being destroyed as, you know, they foresaw. So I, I think this all leads towards one place. It does lead towards, you know, inflation rolling over, which we've seen, but it also leads to slow growth. Right. So I think what we're going to see going forward is a low level of growth in the economy. And let's talk about that a little bit, because with the fourth quarter GDP data out, we saw some interesting information there that we've been both talking about off mic and also within some of our other projects. And I think it's interesting to see that consumers or consumption really only made up 0.2% of that 2.9% gain, that the leading drivers in order were inventory bills, which seemed to be transitory, to borrow a tired word. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so what you'd like to see in GDP, obviously, is healthy growth in the GDP. So if you want your GDP to grow in the right way, you want consumption to grow, you want investments to grow. And these are the two things that are not growing. In fact, we saw the growth in this side of GDP come mainly from a higher level of inventories. And now we all know what's been happening with the inventory situation when Nike reported, when Walmart reported. And this seems to be a stickier situation than most anticipated. So we've had clearance sales, all right, um, in December, but I, I think we're still continuing to see higher levels of inventory. And the problem with this is that it is uh, a volatile item, right? And it, we saw $130 billion in real terms come from inventory growth, which is not exactly comforting because this is going to normalize very soon. And when it does normalize, it's going to pull down the GDP number with it. And it's interesting because then we also saw another driver of this GDP growth was imports falling more than exports. But if the dollar starts to firm up, it seems like that trend might not continue. Absolutely. So what we want in terms of, you know, imports and exports is we want to have stronger exports versus, you know, uh, the change in exports being less, right? So what we're seeing here is imports decreased um, much more than exports decreased. And that's what's driving sort of the GDP growth. But what we'd re rather like to see is exports actually increasing and driving that strength in the GDP. And then the last driver that we were talking about was non-defense government spending being up 11%, which makes sense given some of the bills like the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as the Chips and Science Act. But with those bills already passed and funding secured, so to speak, it sounds like that spend could start to drop as well. And so these three pillars of GDP growth don't really seem sustainable. And then what the most important pillar, consumption, which typically makes up two-thirds of GDP growth during a healthy, robust economy, that was only 0.2% of that 2.9%. So it kind of sounds like we're not on very solid footing. But I wanted to zoom in a little bit on the inventory side because one of the areas we can watch is retail sales. And we just don't see very encouraging signs there, particularly from general merchandise, where the last three months – those sales have been falling. What do you make of that? 
Well, this goes back to demand destruction once again, right? So this is exactly what we want to see. So if you look at the PCE numbers, you see durable growth, uh, durable goods coming down. And this is retail sales. What you're seeing in terms of the retail sales numbers match what we're seeing in terms of the PCE uh, numbers as well. So I think we should have seen this slightly sooner. I would say that, you know, we're seeing this decline since, say, about November. So we've seen November, December, and perhaps we'll see a little bit of a decline in January as well. But what's interesting is the autos number. We have seen a slowdown in car sales last year, and it seems like they're perking up here in January. But last year, we saw lows that we hadn't seen since the COVID crash, both from new and used car sales, domestic and foreign. And now we're starting to see a bit of that come back as prices have decreased. But on the other side of that, we're also seeing about 6% of car loans in delinquency. So there's a mixed picture there in auto sales. What, what do you make of all that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I looked at auto lenders quite closely a couple of weeks ago, and none of the signs point to anything good. So what we're seeing definitely is the level of delinquencies rising. And one of the reasons for this is that a large portion of the auto loans were giving, given out to uh, four rather, uh, used cars. And used car lending is usually at the lower end, means lower end of the credit score spectrum. So most of the people who are taking out used car loans <clears throat> tend to have lower credit scores. And these are the people who tend to have higher levels of delinquencies when things get tough. So it's following pretty much the same cycle that you would expect when it comes to credit. And it's interesting because we hear the statistics that are that are out there that two thirds of consumers are living paycheck to paycheck, that 40 percent are having trouble paying their bills, that the usage of revolving credit like credit cards is surging, that the savings rate is hitting or close to all time lows. The lowest was in 2005. And this all points to a picture where at least the, the lower tiers of income in the, in the consumer group have been falling behind pretty significantly, that they're borrowing to spend on essentials and that they don't really have that elasticity of budget, whether it's in cash or in the ability to get new credit, to keep consuming. That should get our attention in an economy where two-thirds of GDP is typically driven by consumption, and yet that part has been falling rather precipitously. In fact, um, it's not just been falling, but there are portions where you're seeing um, negative growth like you've never seen before. Take, for example, the money supply, right? We've never seen the money supply grow negative in our lifetimes or maybe when we were just born. So that it's quite you know, a drastic change in the economy. And we're seeing all these changes come about in the data. We're seeing all these changes gradually taking effect, but it doesn't seem to be having a massive effect on the market pricing just yet. What do you make of that? 
I think it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up M2 growth. It's it's the first negative year-over-year change we've ever seen in nominal terms, and I think it does help to explain at least some of what we're seeing with regards to the increase in debt that is either delinquent or at least distressed, because there's not enough money in the system to pay down the interest on this debt, that the money in the system is actually beginning to shrink as rates rise and the burden of that debt is becoming more troublesome for a lot of people. And then in real terms, it's the first drop in M2 growth that we've seen, I think, since the 1980s. So all of this just sort of casts a shadow on the most important part of the U.S. economy. And it also is troubling for small and medium-sized businesses. One of the points that you made the other day that I thought was really important is that a lot of these small and medium-sized businesses, they have, for their credit, revolving lines of credit. And those rates are resetting higher. And as the Fed has talked about with this idea of cumulative tightening, they're feeling it the hardest and they're feeling it first, just like consumers, because they don't get to get fixed rate debt. They're sort of at the mercy of the Fed and the banks as to whether A, they're going to even be able to get any credit and B, what the cost of that credit might be. And with small and medium sized businesses being the largest creator of jobs, it does start to beg the question, how durable is this robust job growth that we've seen? What do you think? So I, I guess this is why when you look into the small business expectations index and the sentiment indicators around small businesses, you're seeing significant levels of negative data over there, right? Because it is the small businesses that are getting hurt the most. And contrary to what people believe, um, the small businesses is what makes up the majority of the landscape. Uh, when it comes to businesses in the U.S. or anywhere around the world, you know, so listed companies are much smaller in terms of numbers, in terms of, you know, employment and, uh, you know, to a large extent, even in terms of debt. So when you have this massive portion of the economy, um, you know, faced with rising levels of debt, the first thing you start to see is unemployment. And many of these numbers perhaps have not translated into the unemployment rate as yet. And some part of that has to do with the fact that many of these businesses have uh, lost people, let's say, to you know work from home, starting their own businesses, and so on and so forth. But I don't think this trend can last much longer. With the way the economy is being stressed now, with conditions tightening, I know conditions have loosened somewhat over the last few months. But overall, when you look at 2021 and you look at 2020 towards the end of 2020, we are significantly tighter now. And we are in a situation where smaller businesses and the consumer will get hit hard. You know, and you mentioned tightening, and I think that it's important to also sort of separate out the different areas of financial conditions, because what matters most to small businesses is how available credit is and what the cost of that credit is. And we've seen that particular area tighten significantly. There really has been no reprieve there. Banks are, are increasing their lending standards. They're lending to less consumers and less small and medium-sized businesses. And that has to be a pretty significant headwind for these companies, because 
because not only are they seeing less availability of credit, but then any credit they do have is resetting to higher and higher rates, increasing the burden of carrying any of that debt. And we saw in some of the surveys of small businesses last year that just about half were already starting to struggle with paying their rent. And we know that there's sort of the great vacating of office space, right? People are going more towards hybrid offices and remote work. So maybe that can provide a bit of a buffer for the businesses that are in industries where they don't necessarily need to be in an office. But eventually, this all does catch up. And there are impacts that I think, you know, as you highlighted, this is something that will catch up. We haven't seen it quite yet in the labor data because, you know, businesses don't want to fire people. It's already been so hard to hire people over the last couple of years that letting talent go after all of that effort of bringing people on, screening them, training them, and so forth, getting that talent back is is challenging. And so it maybe it is, like you're saying, something that we see a bit of a, a latent impact on, but it's just something that I think we should all be keeping an eye on because, again, as Aisha points out, small and medium-sized businesses are the backbone of the U.S. economy. And if they're not doing well, the economy is not going to do well either. And, and quite frankly, neither is the consumer because they rely on the incomes from these small and medium-sized businesses that they're paid as employees if they still have a job. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about and I wanted to get your opinion on this. The inflation expectations from the University of Michigan, that came out last Friday. And that just, it showed us that people are more concerned now about the one year forward-looking inflation. They think that prices are going to stay sticky to the high side or maybe rise in the year ahead. And that's the sort of data that's a little bit concerning because, you know, we've seen Five-year inflation expectations stay, as the Fed likes to say, well anchored. But these one-year inflation expectations are rising again after some relief. And I think that suggests that people may change their spending patterns even more. They're basically starting to realize a couple of things. One is that the impacts of inflation are indeed cumulative, that, that prices, you know, even when the rate of inflation falls, they're just rising at a slower pace. And the second issue is that wages in real terms really haven't risen for decades very much. There's brief blips where wages rise in real terms, but for the most part, that you know, people are struggling against the increasing price pressure that they've experienced, particularly over the last two years. What do you make of that, Aisha? It kind of sounds like the consumer is still very concerned and that that's going to further depress their ability to participate in the economy, particularly on some of the items that, you know, if we're talking about retail, for example, they would make more money on, like discretionary spend. So the thing with consumer uh, inflation expectations, you know, increasing in like for the next one year, I think it's right that, you know, they expect inflation to increase and mainly because the items now that's left in the inflation. So we've seen inflation, you know, roll over meaningfully. We've seen it decline. We've seen this inflation. But the problem is the items that are left now are the stickier items. 
right? And these are more of the items that are not discretionary. These are the items that are staples. So you see, for example, healthcare, you see, for example, food, you see food at home, groceries, everything still remains significantly high. And this is exactly where the consumer is spending most of its money, spending most of their money, right? So you see, if you look at, you know, a breakdown of the PCE data, if you look at the CPI data, you'll see most of the discretionary items have come down meaningfully. So you've seen luxury boats come down, for example, you've seen durable items come down, white goods come down. But the ones that people need on a daily basis have not really come down. And this is something the Fed should be worried about. And I think they are. They are beginning to worry about this. So I, I, I've always said that they worry about two things. One is entrenched inflation expectations, and the other one is a wage spiral. And this goes back to what Volcker said in the, you know during the great inflation of the late 70s, early 80s. And he said, inflation feeds in part on itself. So part of the job of returning to a more stable and more productive economy must be to break the grip of inflationary expectations. When people expect inflation, they start to buy more in the here and now in anticipation of prices going up, right? And this feeds inflation even more. Same with the wage spiral. When inflation starts to rise, people want higher and higher wages to compensate for the higher level of inflation. And that sort of drives up the cost of production for companies who have to, again, increase prices at the top level. So inflation is horrible when it gets out of control. And we have these two issues, the expectations and the wage spiral. And both of these issues are what the Fed should be scared about and have been scared about. And I think Chair Powell has mentioned this on and off again during his speeches. And now we come to a time when I feel like from everything that he's saying, he's starting to get a little bit more worried about these issues. What do you think? I think it is interesting how he's sort of walked the tightrope of managing expectations. On the one hand, if the Fed is too aggressive, it could imperil hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of global debt. It could create you know, more uh, economic dislocation. But on the other hand, as you're saying, if inflation becomes an entrenched expectation over the longer term, if people begin to change their habits to accept that this is the new normal, you could have front-loading of demand of key items, and that could actually further push inflation. It could also create more upward wage pressure if indeed people start to say, look, I'll do this job, but I won't do it unless I get paid X. You know, There are certain industries where that's still a potential issue, something that you've spoken to quite a bit with the idea that a wage price spiral is something that we still need to be concerned about. Now, I think that ultimately the Fed recently changed their posture a little bit to be just a little less concerned about inflation, but still willing to continue to raise rates to higher levels than what the market might price in, but also being sanguine about the loosening of financial conditions, which is, you know, really. Powell had repeatedly expressed his concern about loose financial conditions. And then of late, he seems to be accepting that these financial conditions have loosened so meaningfully by some measures 
that we're back to levels before the Fed even hiked rates a single time, which I think is just a little bit strange, that change in character. So I believe that the Fed is to some degree concerned about what's happening within the banking system, but also concerned about what's happening in the greater economy. The banking system has a lot of unrealized losses. The economy is dealing with, you know, what seems to be strength at the surface level, but also this idea that maybe inflation isn't going to fall commensurate with Fed policy goals. Mohammed El-Aryan has suggested that inflation could fall to about 4% as measured by PCE and then stay a bit sticky. And I think that's another thing that we do need to be concerned about is, yeah, we've seen disinflation. Powell mentioned it about 11 times during his February Fed press conference and then again during the subsequent interview with David Rubenstein at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. So it seems like the Fed is starting to say, we're seeing some of our policies work. We just haven't gotten to the finish line yet. So I am, I will say, mixed on my view of what the Fed is doing here. I personally think that the way that they approached the market in February provided a little bit too much comfort and relief to folks that are thinking that this Fed is ready to back off. But on the other side of it, I think that if we start to see inflation print some upside surprises, that this Fed could start to get more aggressive again. So the last thing that I wanted to bring up, and you know, this is a really interesting chart that you showed me, we've got this debt ceiling kabuki theater coming again, right? We know that every time the debt ceiling issue comes up, there has to be this saber rattling and jousting in Congress between the parties and fiscal priorities. And of course, defense spending is never on the chopping block. That's like the holy grail of the, the fiscal spend. But everything else is on the chopping block in terms of potential for us here. And with this latest debt ceiling debacle, we're seeing U.S. credit default swaps really start to increase pretty meaningfully, even above that of our European counterparts. Aisha, you've been looking into this. What do you make of this? And before we get into what you make of it, maybe break down what credit default swaps or CDS are for those listening that don't know. Sure. So very quickly, a credit default swap basically allows an investor to swap their credit risk with another investor. So it's sort of like taking out an insurance against a a risky event, if you'd like. That's the layman's way of, say, putting it. So when we see these levels rise, basically what it signifies is that the risk is increasing. So it's becoming more expensive sort of to insure for that risk, for that added risk. Now, interestingly enough, the U.S. has been seeing the one-year CDS level at about 20, in fact, slightly below 20, and that's kind of where it should be. But in the last couple of months, what we're seeing is basically not couple of months, like let's say the first week of January, we suddenly saw the CDS spread spike. And right now it's at 62. So on average, it's been below 20. And now it's at 62. And all of this is because there's been additional risk being uh, priced into the system for the US. And it's exactly what you said. I, I, I believe, and I think, you know, I've read a couple of things here and there, which points to the situation of the Kabuki theater of the debt ceiling. So it, it's all this drama going around. It's, it's whether, you know, the U.S. will actually default or not default, whether they will raise their debt ceiling. And we saw this drama a little bit last year as well. But this time, things seem to be a little bit more dire. Uh, what do you make of this? 
I just, I find the whole thing a bit absurd, honestly. I think that... But that's all I guess I said from Pulse's fiction. ...that creates more problems than anything resembling solutions. I understand why it was put in place, the idea that maybe if we did this, it would have uh, legislators give spending maybe a second thought. But let's be real. This is a country that spends wildly out of control, often on things that are bloated in cost, often on programs that are inefficient in generating GDP. I think the last time I looked at these numbers, it takes about $8 of government spend to create about $1 of GDP growth. So, you know, I think the debt ceiling is something that has wasted an inordinate amount of time has created more market stress and and more sort of uncertainty about the US i think even once we caught a credit rating downgrade because of some of the debacles with the debt ceiling and government shutdowns that have happened and i just i don't see the point to it i think that that at the end of the day the debt ceiling is imposed by our creditors not by our own government interesting point and I don't know whether we should really be worried at this point or not. Yeah. We've seen this we've seen this whole thing play out once before and the ceiling was raised promptly as and when required. So it just seems like the it's more drama than anything else at this point. Whether it becomes something of you know, something to consider or something to, you know, worry about, we probably know in the next two to three months. But what I find very interesting is that people are already kind of pricing in the higher risk at this stage, which is not something I probably would have expected immediately, but it is something that outsiders, I guess, are considering. And they're considering it our credit default swaps, but they don't really seem to be pricing it into the actual treasury market, which is interesting too. There, you know, and there are consequences of hitting this debt ceiling, which we did recently, and one of which is that, you know, Secretary Secretary Yellen is going to be spending down the Treasury General account because there won't be as much debt issuance. And that's the other is that there simply won't be as much debt issuance. And maybe going into this, there was some sense that this would happen. That was one reason we had about three quarters of a trillion of debt issued in the final quarter of 2022. The other, of course, being increased spending for some of these bills that needed to be funded. But at the end of the day, there are impacts in the market, even outside of the obvious areas. There's less supply. So if demand remains constant, perhaps that's one of the things that's providing a bit of a bid in treasuries. On the other side, outside of the actual price or yield action, as it were, we do see record bets against treasuries. Maybe part of that is an insurance policy against the debt ceiling, but I have a feeling a greater part of that positioning probably has to do with concerns about the Fed's QT and other large foreign counterparties simply not participating in our treasury market as they had previously, like Japan, where currency hedging costs now have their average yield when buying into U.S. treasuries at about negative one and a half percent. In fact, believe it or not, they can get better yields from the 10-year JGB or Japanese government bond than they can buying our debt with those currency hedges. So a lot of things shifting underneath the surface. It's definitely an interesting environment 
And this has been an interesting conversation to have. So I hope everyone out there has enjoyed what we've discussed today. Of course, if you have any questions or feedback, you're welcome to visit us at macrovisor.com where we have the podcast linked and leave those questions and feedback right there in the podcast post. Check out our other content. And if you're so inclined, subscribe. And we'll be providing content on a regular basis about the economy, about the markets, and more, diving in, trying to provide our insights and our views as we go throughout 2023 and beyond. Aisha, before we close out here with this episode of the Macrovisor podcast, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with our audience? Sure. I think it's very important for us to look at the data, not just price action in the market, because sometimes all of this data on their own, they don't seem anything, they don't seem like they're forming a pattern, let's say. But when you put everything together, and when you start to look at the data from, you know, taking a step back and looking at the data from a holistic point of view, you start to see a pattern forming. And I think what we're seeing right now is sort of cracks forming in this market, right? The thing with macro is it always takes a little bit of time for it to play out. And there's always a lag, but the cracks are there. And what's scary is at some point, these cracks may just give way and we might see something meaningful occur. So I think it's very important for us to track everything that's going on in the economy for at least for us to understand it and see where this market is headed. Yeah, absolutely. Great points there. Sometimes we don't understand what risks we may be facing unless we really do focus on the bigger economic picture. The market can tell a different story, and it is always important to look at price action, especially if you're a shorter-term trader. But in the bigger picture, knowing these risks and knowing where there's strength and weakness in the global economy and also in the sectors of our own economy and other regional economies can help us not only identify opportunities, but also where there might be downside risks. And obviously, we can capitalize on both sides of the equation. And that's one of the reasons that we built Macrovisor was to try to talk about the big picture and then drill down into more specifics and details to help everyone that takes our content into consideration. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. 